You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 17th day of March, 2012. So in addition to wishing you all a happy St. Paddy's Day, I would of course also like to urge you all once again to check into my website CorbettReport.com for previous editions of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created over the past five years, thousands of hours of free media available free to the public and free for download, so please take advantage of that resource. And to all of you who have signed up to be subscribers and or purchased the 2010 Video Archive DVD this week, thank you once again for all of your support. I truly couldn't do all of this without you, so my hat's off to all of you. And on that note, we have a lot of information to go through, as always, so let's go straight into the episode. Welcome, friends, to episode 222 of The Corbett Report. Lessons in Resistance. Open Source. If the massive protest and awareness raising that occurred in the wake of the SOPA and PIPA threat earlier this year taught us anything, it's that the people do have a voice, and that when they stand up collectively and say a resounding no to the Hollywood fat cats and the Congress critters who are in their back pocket, they can make a difference and they can get those fat cats to back down. Or can they? Well, for those of you who thought that the war over the internet is over... Think again, because on July 12th, the ISPs are going after pirates. That's right. According to CNET, major Internet service providers like Comcast, Cablevision, Verizon, Time Warner Cable, and more, they've all been secretly plotting behind closed doors with the RIAA and the MPAA to find a way to stop copyright infringement. And apparently they've been plotting this since last July, proving that these people know how to keep a secret. That is, until this week, when the RIAA CEO, Carrie Sherman, decided to spill the beans and revealed that the major ISPs will all be on the same page and ready to attack by this summer. This, even though there's ample evidence that policing the web for pirates isn't the best way to handle this issue, but, of course, not surprisingly, Sherman doesn't see it that way. And in fact, he told the tech site CNET that the companies have been working behind the scenes to develop a streamlined method of finding infringers. Sherman explained each ISP has to develop their infrastructure for automating the system. They need this to establish the database so they can keep track of repeat infringers so they know that this is the first notice or the third notice. So, hey, isn't it good to know the ISPs have been working behind their customers' backs and simply didn't mention their plan during the entire months-long debate around SOPA and PIPA? And just to show how thoroughly they've worked out their plan, there's even a penalty system that's going to be implemented called mitigation measures, which can range from throttling down your internet connection speed to completely suspending your access altogether. But guess who else is behind this master plan? It wasn't just the bigwigs in Hollywood, but Washington, D.C. also knew about it. I guess we can't be surprised. After all, lawmakers actually thought earlier this year that they could pass the Stop Online Piracy Act or Protect Intellectual Property Act. Until, of course, every major tech company, millions of Internet users, all convinced them that these bills had no place becoming law. And people were so opposed to SOPA and PIPA that they even staged an online blackout. And guess what? It worked. But it looks like Hollywood is playing the long game here, and they're covering all of their bases. They went to both the government and the private sector to make sure they had every tool in the box on their side. So clearly, they're not going down without a fight. So people, mark your calendars. July 12th, it is. Hollywood is coming for you again. And this time, they're using your internet service provider to help them carry out their plans. 
Sai, no, they're not going to stop anytime soon. In fact, they're just going to continue redoubling their efforts over and over and over until they achieve what they want, which is to shut down the free and open internet as we have hitherto enjoyed it. As I'm sure my listeners are probably all too familiar with right now, this is, of course, a war of attrition, exactly as I indicated on Corporate Report Radio the day after the well, successful, in quotation marks, SOPA and PIPA protests, which did get the Congress curators to back down from that legislation. But unfortunately, as we saw, the very next day, Mega Upload was taken down, and uh, it just goes to show that they don't really need this legislation in order to throw their weight around online and do what they want. And for anyone who has been keeping their eyes on internet censorship over the last couple of months, you'll know that the, uh, the encroaching internet censorship just keeps on going apace. And earlier this month, we also had from RT.com, any.com a target? U.S. takes down illegal website outside America, noting how any top-level domain that is registered uh, in the U.S., which includes .com, .net, .org, .biz, and maybe .info, as well as, I think, others like .tv, which are partially run via the U.S., uh, the, the U.S. is now claiming the right and the ability to uh, to be, be able to block those websites at the, the domain registrar level. So... So even if you're outside of uh, the United States, even if your website is outside of the United States, even if your domain name is is something like a, a .org or a .net, and uh, it, it doesn't really matter, they'll come after you anyway, and they can still claim the right to be able to take down your website. So there are some resources online that I'll point you to uh, about what to do to try to prevent this happening to your own website if you happen to be in that case. Rest assured, I will be working on getting a uh, .ch or some other type of extension for the Corbett Report, at least as a backup, so that if and when uh, CorbettReport.com gets seized, well, we can just switch over to hopefully to something else. But unfortunately, this is the type of thing that anyone who is online has to be thinking about more and more, especially in the wake of this latest draconian proposal, as mentioned in that report. And more can be garnered from rawstory.com, American ISPs to launch massive copyright spying scheme on July 12th. And it's not exactly sure at this point exactly how this is going to work, whether the ISPs are going to be snooping all internet traffic and trying to parse uh, what people are looking at in order to send them the messages uh, to warn them about downloading copyrighted material, or whether the MPAA and RIAA are going to be spying on all torrent traffic and trying to get IP addresses so that they can send them to the ISPs. It's not really sure how this is going to work, and there are some significant legal questions about how this is all going to work, but rest assured, if they want to do it, they're going to do it and ask questions about the legality later. And uh, you can bet, you can absolutely bet that the 99% of the establishment media is going to go right along with it and not even mention it, let alone uh, raise questions about it. So unfortunately, we see this growing and encroaching censorship taking place as we've gone over many times on this program. But what is really at the root of this issue? What is it that we are fighting? What is it we are arguing about? Why is it there is such a vast divide between the people who see the types of things that are being done by these online pirates, quote unquote, and the uh, the MPAA and RIAA and those types of people, why is there such a discrepancy in the characterization of what is happening here? What is the actual roots of this issue, and is it decidable? Well, as G.I. Joe sagely advises us, knowing is half the battle, so it's time to start informing ourselves about the issue that is underlying and undergirding this entire debate, which is intellectual property, the concept that there are 
that there are concepts that are somehow limited, that we must restrict the freedom and the ability of others to use those concepts because we must uh, allow the person who came up with those concepts the time to make money off of it so that they have an incentive to come up with more concepts. An interesting, uh, bizarre theory in many ways when you start breaking it down, but it, ha it has become so much a part of our ingrained society that I wonder if we can even imagine a world without intellectual property. And certainly that wasn't even possible back in the 1780s during the drafting of the, uh, the Constitution of the, the fledgling United States. When Article 1, Section 8 was enumerating the powers of the Congress, and that's the section that starts with the Congress shall have power to etc., etc., lay and collect taxes, borrow money, regulate commerce, etc., etc., everything that the Congress is specifically allowed to do, and uh, by the way, anything that they're not actually specifically given the, uh, the power to do will devolve to the, uh, the states, but uh, imagine actually trying to draw the Congress back to what it was actually uh, given in Article 1, Section 8. But anyway, I digress. Of course, you can go and read that online, usconstitution.net or other places where you can find the U.S. Constitution online, at least while we have an online that we can use and freely access. And in that article, there is the copyright clause, quote-unquote, or that's what it's been referred to as, and it says that the Congress shall have power to, quote, promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Well, that sounds reasonable enough, doesn't it? The ability to give authors and inventors time to market and sell and, and profit from their inventions the, the things that they've come up with, the ideas that they, they, they have in order to give them an incentive to do their work at all. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, we'll get into that some more later, but again, in an attempt to better inform ourselves about this issue and its roots and what, what types of terms we're talking about, we're going to listen to a short segment of, of a, just a clip from an audiobook about Against Intellectual Property by Stephen Kinsella that is distributed by Mises.org, so I will direct you to the documentation section for today's episode where you can find the actual uh, full copy of this and go listen to it. It's quite a scholarly treatise about intellectual property and why Kinsella and others are against that concept. But we're going to listen to just a brief part of the beginning of that book, talking about a summary of IP, that is intellectual property law. And we're going to be specifically honing in on copyright and patent law. Of course, there's also trade secret and trademark law, but those are slightly different. And for our purposes today, we're really thinking about copyrights and patents, i.e. copyrights on works like uh, the uh, writings or the the productions of the Hollywood moguls, or patents to do with inventions, things that can, or processes that can be devised by people. Well, those are uh, subject to patent law. So let's listen to this segment from the uh, Against Intellectual Property book by Stephen Kinsella talking about IP law in the United States context. Against Intellectual Property by Stephen Kinsella. A Summary of Intellectual Property Law Types of IP Intellectual property is a broad concept that covers several types of legally recognized rights arising from some type of intellectual creativity or that are otherwise related to ideas. IP rights are rights to intangible things, to ideas as expressed, copyrights, or as embodied in a practical implementation, patents. Tom Palmer puts it this way, 
Intellectual property rights are rights in ideal objects, which are distinguished from the material substrata in which they are instantiated. In today's legal systems, IP typically includes at least copyrights, trademarks, patents, and trade secrets. Copyright Copyright is a right given to authors of original works such as books, articles, movies, and computer programs. Copyright gives the exclusive right to reproduce the work, prepare derivative works, or to perform and present the work publicly. Copyrights protect only the form or expression of ideas, not the underlying ideas themselves. While a copyright may be registered to obtain legal advantages, a copyright need not be registered to exist, Rather, a copyright comes into existence automatically the moment the work is fixed in a tangible medium of expression and lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years or for a total of 95 years in cases in which the employer owns the copyright. Patent A patent is a property right in inventions, that is, in devices or processes that perform a useful function. A new or improved mousetrap is an example of a type of device which may be patented. A patent effectively grants the inventor a limited monopoly on the manufacture, use or sale of the invention. However, a patent actually only grants to the patentee the right to exclude, i.e. to prevent others from practicing the patented invention. It does not actually grant to the patentee the right to use the patented invention. In a footnote, the author expands, Suppose A invents and patents a better mousetrap, which has a nitinol, memory metal, spring, for better snapping ability. Now suppose B invents and patents a mousetrap with a nitinol spring covered with non-stick coating to improve the ability to remove mouse remains while still providing the nitinol-driven snapping action. B has to have a mousetrap with a nitinol spring in order to use his invention, but this would infringe upon A's patent. Similarly, A cannot add the non-stick coating to his own invention without infringing upon B's improvement patent. In such situations, the two patentees may cross-license so that A can practice B's improvement on the mousetrap and so B can use his own invention. Not every innovation or discovery is patentable. The U.S. Supreme Court has, for example, identified three categories of subject matter that are unpatentable, namely laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas. Reducing abstract ideas to some type of practical application, i.e. a useful, concrete, and tangible result, is patentable, however. U.S. patents, since June 8, 1995, last from the date of issuance until 20 years from the original filing date of the patent application. The previous term was 17 years from date of issue. 
Well, there at least are the outlines of intellectual property law in the United States context. There are similar laws in many countries around the world. So, of course, it would probably be best for you to go and search your own country's laws so you are at least better familiar with the problem of intellectual property, if uh, if indeed it is such. I think we all understand there's something fundamentally wrong with a system that is protecting companies that, for instance, want to uh, be able to limit someone's ability to make copies of their own material, for example, uh, when someone buys or purchases a DVD. The idea that they can make a copy to use on their computer, oh, well, there should be technology to stop people from doing that, and that should be protected. It's uh, it's quite ridiculous on its face, and it leads to all sorts of bizarre situations that most people understand there's something wrong with. But it's sometimes difficult to get to the bottom of exactly what is wrong with this, because, again, a lot of people do think it sounds fair for authors or, or inventors to be rewarded for their work. But is that really what intellectual property is all about? Well, I think certainly that the rest of that Against Intellectual Property uh, audiobook, once again, available for free download, so I will put the link there so you can go and check it out for yourself, does offer some of the, as I think you can tell from that clip, some of the, the academic discussion around those types of issues. And I do suggest that you'd go and, and take a listen to that. For, for example, he uh, quite easily refutes the utilitarian assertion that, well, it certainly intellectual property rights maximizes the ability of, of people to, to have wealth and enjoy wealth and it maximizes happiness in that way. Well, he says, well, even if that's true and it's not necessarily true, certainly the, it's, it's certainly not conclusive that intellectual property actually does make anyone richer or happier in that sense. But uh, but even if it were true, it's certainly not the role of government to be able to enforce laws to restrict other people's freedoms at, a, at the point of a gun. It's certainly not the government's role to do that in the interest of maximizing happiness or all of the other types of arguments that you might come up with. But as I say, I think this is something that people intuitively understand at a certain level, and it's difficult to articulate. So I wanted to direct your attention to something called SendThemYourMoney.com, a very humorous idea that's come up recently that uh, I'll let you look through in your own time. Basically, it's the idea of, well, why don't we send the MPA and the RIAA our money? Because they want it for uh, all of these illegal downloads that have happened. And uh, regardless of whether or not you have actually done it, you can send them money anyway to try to recuperate the billions they say they've lost. But of course, there's a little bit of a catch to the way in which you send them their money. And uh, this comes from a section on that website called The Inspiration. And it It's just a little passage from Japanese uh, history, and it says, Hundreds of years ago, a Japanese judge, Oka Tadasuke, handled a lawsuit by a paranoid innkeeper who accused a poor student of literally stealing the fumes of his cooking by eating when the innkeeper was cooking to flavor his dull food. Although his colleagues advised Oka to throw the case out as ridiculous, he decided to hear the case. The judge resolved the matter by ordering the student to pass the money he had in one hand to his other and ruling that the price of the smell of food is the sound of money. Once again, I suggest you go and read that passage for yourself if you're a visual learner and didn't quite get the gist of it, but absolutely a a brilliant little story. And I think it does get to the heart of what what is so fundamentally wrong about certainly the online piracy, quote-unquote, and people's misgivings about the billions and billions of dollars that the MPAA and RIA like to complain have been lost because of this. Well, uh, why don't you just send them digital money? And uh, so you can actually send them. There's, There's pictures of dollar bills or there's even ASCII 
the art of dollar bills that you can email to the MPA and RIA and say, well, here you go, I'll chip in my bit uh, to help with all of these billions that you've supposedly lost. Anyway, just a humorous little idea that goes, I think, to pointing out the the real bizarreness of the intellectual property idea, the idea that there there is creations versus discoveries so a creation is patentable but a discovery is not or or copyrights you know 20 years is okay but 19 is is just not enough or or all of these bizarre little details that that really show that there's something wrong with this overall system but as i said earlier it, it's so ingrained into our society that i wonder if it's possible for us to actually envision a world without intellectual property And I know we're a long way off from that, but interestingly enough, in the last few decades, there certainly have been people who have been trying to push the world in that direction. And Silicon Valley may have been leading the way in certain respects on this issue, which is where we derive the name of today's episode, Open Source, which is perhaps even a contentious name because there are certain proponents who would prefer other terms, etc., etc. But I think you know where this is heading. And if you don't, let's take a listen to a segment of a short documentary that was put out recently about the concept of open source software and how this idea came about. Open source is not new. The whole software business effectively was no business. And in the beginning it was selling hardware. And to run the hardware you needed some sort of software. But nobody cared about software. You know, nobody cared about licensing or selling software. That came later with standardization, commoditization of the hardware, where people could exchange software between machines. Now let's go back to these times, 1985, 1980. And there is this smart hacker called Richard Matthew Stallman, RMS. And he's at the MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And effectively, he's walking around the MIT and is a real hacker in the good old sense of hacker. At that time, the hacker was the guy who sneaked into the office of the professor, hacking into his room to get access to the terminal that would connect him to the time-sharing system. Hey, look, cash papers. That's where the term hacker originally comes from. Richard Matthew Stallman, he created the Free Software Foundation, the GNU General Public License, which nowadays rules a lot of free software out there. And effectively saying, you know, I don't want software vendors to make a divide between users and developers. If I like software, I must be able to give it to anyone and share it. Richard Stallman was the youngest kid profiled in Stephen Levy's book. He was called Little Richard Stallman by uh, the elders of that AI lab. Now, Richard Stallman is the great guru of the free software movement. He was a mentor to me, so that shows you where I was on the uh, you know, on the genealogy of this whole movement. It was that time in the late 80s, early 90s, where if you wanted something, you built it. And then if you wanted something really special, you shared it. The GPL caught on, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. It was promulgated by the Free Software Foundation, and in particular by uh, Richard Stallman with, with help from Evan Moglen. Copyright tells you you have the right to restrict others from copying your work, from modifying your work, from distributing your work. The GPL says, hey, we're going to give you the right to copy it, and we're going to give you the right to modify it, and we're going to give you the right to distribute it. And the only requirement we've got is that if you do distribute it, you have to do it under this same license agreement. And that way we ensure that the same benefit that you derived out of GPL license software, you're extending to other other parties. I first ran into uh, the GPL, which is the license, the GNU public license, 
in the late 80s actually uh, in England and um, well, I, it kind of struck a chord in me but I didn't really get a chance to actually do open source code full-time until after I came to the US and the, f the first job where I was doing really open source and getting paid for it was when I joined Cygnus um, which is Mike Tiemann's old company that you guys ended up buying. I actually remember that there was quite a stir when Richard Stallman announced Project GNU and the GPL. I remember people debating whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, whether it could possibly work or not possibly work, and I remember that there was this thing going on. And I learned about the GNU Emacs editor, and I was astounded at the idea that something so uh, rich and featureful would be available with source code. And I actually started reading the source code of Emacs. I was always interested in compilers. Uh, I, I excelled at the kind of math and at the kind of study that was related to compilers and I began to form in my mind the idea that I was going to write the great American compiler. And on my birthday in 1987, Richard Stallman releases the GNU C compiler. And I could have seen that as the glass being shattered, not even half empty, but just all the water gone out. Or I could look at that as the glass completely full. Here is a world-class base of software that I could contribute to, uh, and I didn't need to worry about working for a company or licensing it. And that was one of the first times I really began to feel that not only is this a lot of fun, but the amount of value that could be unlocked by free software was amazing. This is the innovation of, of Michael Tiemann, that he realized, he, he read the GPL, which is a, a very strange document if you first read it, it's basically this software license going at about evil software hoarders and stuff. And, and Mike Tiemann's genius was realizing, this is a business model. <laughs> and that really was the innovation that, that, that kind of founded Cygnus and, and ultimately Red Hat, I think. Nobody wanted to start the business because while they all thought it was a great idea, they thought it would never work. And after hearing that for two years, that's when I had my crucial insight. If everybody thought it was a great idea, um, then I was convinced that the capitalistic system would find a way to value it. And if nobody thought it would work, I realized I'd have no competition. By default, everything was proprietary. So, you know, if you wanted to do open source work professionally, Cygnus was literally the only <laughs> company that was. There was no, you know, it, it wasn't like you could do open source work and work for anybody else. The goal of the company was to prove that this business model was as good as any model that had ever been imagined for software, not just in terms of profitability, but just overall sustainability. One of the things that made this whole free software thing work is that it was not dependent on the single individual. When Linus Torvalds sent out his message, his famous message about, hey, I'm working on an operating system, it's not gonna be professional like GNU, obviously this idea of building a kernel really captured the imagination, and his timing was perfect. And he wanted to call it Freaks, F-R-E-A-X. So he created a directory called Freaks, and he wanted to upload the source code there. And the system administrator of that FTP server said, this is a stupid name. This is really complete bullocks. So let's rename it. Your Linux, let's call it Linux. And that's how the name Linux was invented. Which leads me to the three fundamental theories of the whole IT industry. It all happened by accident. It was done by amateurs, and nothing's really changed. 
Ah, yes, the techno-libertarianism, which is now sometimes also referred to as the Californian ideology, because it is so much associated with Silicon Valley and the founding ethos of so many of the, the programmers that were really working on and looking at ways of really changing not just the uh, the ways that software could be produced, but the, really the way that business functions. And we've seen some of those uh, those ideas filter down into the, the general public. But unfortunately, some of the most fundamental concepts really are still a far way off. And in fact, we're getting further from it every single day when companies like Apple, of course, uh, absolutely, completely and utterly restricts their users in every possible way. And unfortunately, the users uh, not only uh, eat it up, but they ask for seconds afterwards and they're willing to pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for their fondle slabs because they're just oh so cool. And oh, who cares about this, uh, this th- any of the restrictions on the software or hardware? A very, very interesting subject. And as I think that documentary at least gave a little bit of a flavor of one with a long or now a fairly long and growing history. And a lot of it traces back to a few fundamental characters in the free software movement, the open source software movement, usually called the free software movement, although that can sometimes be confusing because it doesn't mean free as in free pizza, it means free as in freedom. And uh, and that's a very important concept. And a lot of the roads trace back to people like Richard Stallman, who, of course, was referenced in that clip and elsewhere in that documentary. And Richard Stallman was the inventor of the GNU operating system and the GNU general public license. And I'm sure some of you out there will know what I'm talking about. Some of you, your eyes will glaze over because computer nerdishness is not in your blood. And that's perfectly fine. I think what's important to understand is the concept and the philosophy of free software and what it means generally for building a business model even of for a viable company that is about the freedom of the user to do what they want with the product, i.e. against the traditional forms of intellectual property. And uh, for more on that, there are many different places you can go. There's a good overview article by Carl Fogel up on onlamp.com called What is Free Software? And I'll just read a little bit of that to you. Quote, free software is software that may be modified and redistributed freely by anyone with no significant restrictions on how the code may be changed, the uses to which it may be put, or the parties with whom it may be shared. From this simple definition flow many unexpected consequences. Today, free software is a large body of high-quality code on which much of the internet depends for critical functions, and it constitutes the core operating system for an increasing number of desktop machines as well. But free software is much more than just a collection of programs. It is also a political movement, a programming methodology, and a business model, although not necessarily to the same people at the same time. Indeed, even the term free software is controversial. As we'll see later, some people prefer to call it open source software. The story of how free software became so technologically successful, even as it became ideologically fractious, starts in the early days of the computer industry. End quote. Well, certainly there is a lot of history to go over, and it is interesting to see how the free software or open source software movement developed and what it's about and its underlying philosophical and political bases. But for more on that, why don't we just go to the man himself or one of the uh, the key spokesmen of the free software movement, Richard Stallman. And he was interviewed on the GNU Linux Access show just actually last week. 
And on this, uh, there's a very, very wide ranging conversation with Richard Stallman in which you get to see the way that he operates. And it's uh, it's quite interesting to see how much of a, a zealot for freedom he is. And it's quite interesting. And I think you'll get the sense of that from this clip. So why don't we listen to this conversation with Richard Stallman talking about free software? Welcome Richard Stallman to the show and uh, we've got a whole list of questions and topics for him But I know he also has some introductions. He wants to do Richard. Welcome to the Linux action show uh, what's Sorry, the Chris. Oh. Sorry, Chris. The oh, GNU right. the GNU slash Linux action right. show. Sorry. It's five years of habit, but I'm making the change I'm I'm working Good. on it. <laughs> Basically in 1983 <clears throat> I Decided I wanted to make it possible to use a computer in freedom now, since the computer won't do anything without an operating system, that meant we needed an operating system you could use in freedom. In other words, one that was free software, freedom-respecting software. So I started writing one, and I gave it the name GNU. So I wrote some pieces. I recruited other people to write pieces. Some pieces I found. In some cases, I convinced people to make their software free so it could be used in GNU, such as in the case of Berkeley, the people who had developed BSD, which was proprietary at the time. And in 1992, GNU was almost complete, but it still didn't was missing one major component, the kernel. And that's when Torvalds, who had a proprietary kernel called Linux, made it free software and it filled the last gap in GNU. And the combination is the GNU slash Linux system. So this is an operating system that overall exists not for a technical goal and not for a commercial goal, but rather so you can have freedom. And that's what it's all about. You know, the nice part about that is I like freedom, it turns out. Now, Richard, I wonder, uh, do you, 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 you touched on something there that uh, really resonates with me. You say its goal isn't commercial, its goal is freedom. But uh, right. <clears throat> you look at the technology landscape today, and you know, it's, you, you're well aware how many people are actually now making money off of free software. There's nothing wrong with that. Remember, I didn't say it's anti-commercial. The point is, most operating systems were developed either for a technical motive or for a commercial motive, but the motive for developing GNU was an idealistic political motive. Do you think it detracts so from that the goal? So we can have freedom. Do you think, do you think, the, uh, do you think it detracts from that goal? Well, it can in some cases, but it's a complicated relationship. You shouldn't think that either it's political or commercial. There's no, they don't add up to a constant amount. Mm. Uh, what we find is that in general, the free software community members mostly don't know about the goal of freedom and don't think about it. <laughs> right, right. And so they're very likely to do things such as add non-free programs to the system. Right. Now, this is not, it's not only businesses that do this. There are over a thousand GNU slash Linux distros and there are something like 10 or so that are entirely free software. Yeah, it's difficult to find them, yeah. Well, it's not that difficult to find them, but the po you can find them all in gnu.org slash distros. That's true. There you go. <laughs> the point is that 
who chooses them? The people who really care about freedom, the people who've come to recognize that a non-free program is an injustice. It's an attack on your freedom. Once you see it that way, you say, get it out of here. I, and you start being willing to go to efforts to escape from non-free software, mm -hmm. which is what this is all about. After all, writing the GNU system was a big effort that we made in order to escape from non-free software. But with most of the community not being aware of these ideas at all, you find lots of people who think only in terms of what's convenient right now. And then the businesses that maintain GNU slash Linux systems, well, they they offer what they think the users want. They're looking for success rather than uh, spreading the liberation of cyberspace. And sad to say, with the community as it is, they're right in believing that they will get more success by offering a system that's not entirely free. <laughs> but the result of this is to spread the same weakness. Because after all, the, the voice of the free software movement is not heard all that much in our community. The What people mostly formulate their idea of the goal from is the distros they see most people using and what they hear most people saying mm -hmm. about those distros. So most people who come into our community, far from being told, we've escaped from non-free software, we're free now, they hear, look at this convenient distro, isn't it attractive? And as a result, the weakness of the community propagates itself hmm. and our efforts are mainly dedicated nowadays to uh, to informing people about the ideas that we built the system for. Hmm. Do you feel that's a possibly a generational gap as well as uh, younger people move into uh, this area that perhaps haven't been around since the uh, beginning days that they don't have an appreciation for it as much? Well, so that I don't know if that's really relevant <clears throat> at all. I'm not sure it's any different now in this regard from what it was 20 years ago. In other words, it was that way already. Right. Ah, okay. Right. right. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Now, this actually touches on a topic that hits really close to home for me. Uh, you know, I'm an independent software developer. You know, I, I earn my money selling selling software. And the traditional models, uh, I guess maybe traditional is not the right word, but the kind of the quote-unquote tried-and-true methods are as an independent developer, you make some shareware, you sell some non-free software, you sell a license code for it, uh, etc. How... How do you recommend to people like me uh, or like many of our, our listeners here who are software developers who earn their income selling, you know, games, productivity tools and whatnot well, that are not free? Instead of going into such length, uh, you know, almost lovingly describing this unethical practice, why not let me just answer? I would right. love that, actually. Go for it. Uh, what they're doing is unethical. It's taking away freedom from their clients. And I wish they would stop. In fact, I'd be glad if I could stop them. And I will never be one of their clients, and nobody who appreciates freedom, as I've learned to do, will be their clients except under duress. So no, I, I, I kind of get that. Be, I think that we should all make those businesses fail by not buying anything from them. <laughs> wow. And okay. then they will need to find some other work. 
which means they'll be in the same boat with millions of other people, and I can't cry for them too much. Hmm. Now, it's true that the U.S. as a whole is the victim of uh, unemployment caused by decades of right-wing economic policies, starting with the World Trade Organization and NAFTA. And... Yes, that's that's an that's an unfairness to everyone. Mm. But I'm not more concerned about uh, people who are unemployed and would like to be programmers than I am about people who are unemployed and would like to be factory workers or teachers or anything else. Mm. And uh, if you can't get an ethical job developing software, then you better look for an ethical job doing something else. But in fact, most paid software development is development of custom software, not proprietary products. That's true. So what you said was the usual case is not really the usual case. The usual case is people are getting paid to develop a program to be used by one client, and that client is paying. And that can be done in a perfectly ethical way. Just deliver it to the client as free software, respecting the client's freedom, in other words. And of course, unless that client is a dope, he's going to insist on it anyway. <laughs> now, Richard, can I ask, so do you feel that... Is that if the software is delivered as free software, the client's still going to have to pay because nobody's going to write that specific software unless he's getting paid to. Okay, well, and clients this, know this. Just to so be clear. In that, that's most of the software development business, and it can be done as free software and it won't change much as a business. Now just just to, just so just so I'm clear and just so you know the listeners have it straight. What would you, so if if a if a if an individual builds let's say a video game for Linux or Windows or whatever platform Sorry, they're building for, Linux. for what for 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 GNU slash Linux, it's going to take me a while to get that. We're working on it. We're working on it. Well, that's uh, why I have to keep reminding you. No, absolutely <laughs> appreciate it. Um, so you would prefer them to simply not create that that game or that application absolutely at all because who's going to use it only people who are willing to give up their freedom and the price that they pay to use it is their freedom so in effect that program although it may be attractive is really a trap it's okay. a trap where you lose your freedom. Now, let me, let me, and let me, I think people shouldn't make traps like that, especially when they're successful. After all, if it were a total flop, it wouldn't be hurting anybody. But if it's a success, true. that means it's separating lots of people from their freedom. Okay. See, it, it's interesting. You know, I, as, a, as a general idea, I totally agree with you on that. On the flip side, I hate to see the loss of, of new creative works, uh, you know, new but video games. Are these like. re- would it really be a loss if, you, if it's something that you can only use by giving up your freedom? Would you use it? I wouldn't use it. I would say, damn, another program that's been uh, offered to those worse than suckers who are going to give up their freedom and, of course, released in such a way that I couldn't dream of using it. Okay. I think it's wasted effort or worse than wasted effort because a waste, after all, is something that that – uh, contributes zero value to society, and the value of this is negative. It's negative in the freedom dimension. Hmm. So, uh, 
I don't think it's a loss if they're not made. Well, we will leave that there. But as I say, an extremely interesting, extremely far-ranging conversation. And they do get into to really some of the interesting philosophical puzzles behind free software and why some people are just so absolutely against the idea of companies putting out free uh, property, property that can be freely used and, and tinkered with and deconstructed and put back together in any way, way, shape, or form that the user sees fit. Why Why are people so against that idea? Well, a lot of people just don't see how it can be a viable business model. And of course, the idea of prop- proprietary software, of putting your software in chains so that no one can ever modify it or see inside or see what it's doing. Well, that's the only way we can ever make money from anything. Well, the free software movement has given the lie to that, at least to some extent, with uh, some free software making lots and lots of money, because people are willing to contribute when they at least understand what it is they're contributing to and what they get out of it. And uh, unfortunately, in this day and age, in the consumer-driven, corporate-driven, intellectual property-driven environment in which we find ourselves, it's very, very rare to find a Richard Stallman who will stand up with his beliefs and refuse to use any software or hardware that is not open and that does not allow him the freedom to do what he wants. So, for instance, he avoids Skype, just as one tiny example, as a program which is not open source. It is proprietary. You can't see under the hood. You can't change it to your liking. You can't do anything with it. It is just there. You have to accept it wholesale or not at all. So he doesn't accept it at all. And when you really start to think about applying that to all of the various computer software you might be using... Well, it's, uh, it really boggles the mind to think about because, of course, so much of the software that we just tend to default into using truly is not free. It is not open, and, uh, and it does restrict our freedoms. And Richard Salman, for whatever else you might say about him, he at least does have the courage to stick to his convictions and put his money where his mouth is and not go and play along with the corporations that want to convince us that the only paradigm that makes any business sense is a one in which there is intellectual property. Ha ha ha. Well, at any rate, I will perhaps move and transition off of the software issue right now because, of course, the non-computer nerds in the audience will have their eyes glazing over by now and perhaps still wondering how this really applies to anything in the in their day-to-day life. Well, let me assure you the concept of open source does not start or end with software. In fact, it goes to some of the absolute most important facets of our life on this planet, and that's not hyperbole. As people who listened to my recent GRTV backgrounder about open seeds will know. The oft-neglected legal minefield of intellectual property rights has seen a surge in public interest in recent months due to the storm of protest over proposed legislation and treaties related to online censorship. One of the effects of such legislation as SOPA and PIPA, and such international treaties as ACTA, is to have drawn attention to the grave implications that intellectual property arguments can have on the everyday lives of the average citizen. As important as the protection of online freedoms is, however, an even more fundamental part of our lives has come under the purview of the multinational corporations that are seeking to patent the world around us for their own gain. Unknown to a large section of the public, a single U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1980 made it possible for the first time to patent life itself for the profit of the patent holder. The decision, known as Diamond v. Chakrabarty, centered on a genetic engineer working for General Electric who created a bacterium that could break down crude oil, which could be used in the cleanup of oil spills. In his decision, Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger ruled that a live, human-made microorganism is patentable subject matter under 35 U.S.C. 101. With this ruling, 
the ability to patent living organisms, so long as they had been genetically altered in some novel way, was established in legal precedent. The implications of such a monumental ruling are understandably wide-reaching, touching on all sorts of issues that have the potential to change the world around us. But it didn't take long at all for the decision's effect to make itself felt in one of the most important parts of the biosphere, our food supply. In the years following the Diamond v. Chakrabarty decision, an entire industry rose up around the idea that these new patent protections could foster the economic incentive for major corporations to develop a new class of genetically engineered foods to help increase crop yields and reduce world hunger. The first commercially available genetically modified food, Calgene's Flavor Saver Tomato, was approved for human consumption by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. in 1992 and was on the market in 1994. Since then, adoption of GM foods has proceeded swiftly, especially in the U.S., where the vast majority of soybeans, corn, and cotton have been genetically altered. By 1997, the problems inherent in the patenting of these GM crops had already begun to surface in Saskatchewan, Canada. It was in the sleepy town of Bruno that a canola farmer, Percy Schmeiser, found that a variety of GM canola known as Roundup Ready had infected his fields, mixing with his non-GM crop. Amazingly, Monsanto, the agrochemical company that owned the Roundup Ready patent, sued Schmeiser for infringing their patent. After a years-long legal battle against the multinational that threatened to bankrupt his small farming operation, Schmeiser finally won an out-of-court settlement with Monsanto that saw the company agree to pay for the cleanup costs associated with the contamination of his field. In India, tens of thousands of farmers per year have committed suicide in an epidemic labeled the GM genocide. Sold a story of magic seeds that would produce immense yields, farmers around the country were driven into ruinous debt by a combination of high-priced seeds, high-priced pesticides, and crop failure. Worst of all, the GM seeds had been engineered with so-called terminator technology, meaning that seeds from one harvest could not be replanted the following year. Instead, farmers were forced to buy seeds at the same exorbitant prices from the biotech giants every year, ensuring a debt spiral that was impossible to escape. As a result, hundreds of thousands of farmers have committed suicide in the Indian countryside since the introduction of GM crops in 1997. As philosopher, quantum physicist, and activist Vandana Shiva has detailed at great length, the effect of the invocation of intellectual property in enabling the monopolization of the world's most fundamental resources was not accidental or contingent. On the contrary, this is something that has been self-consciously designed by the heads of the very cor corporations who now seek to reap the benefit of this monopolization, and the monumental nature of their achievement has been obscured behind bureaucratic institutions like the WTO and innocuous-sounding agreements like the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. They used to be in the FAO at that time, the Food and Agriculture Organization of uh, the United Nations, a term used called seed wars. The chemical industry that had moved into the seed sector um, had started to say it's not fair that farmers save seed. It's not equitable that they save seed. Equity is monopoly. Only the corporations should have the right to seed. And they spent a lot of time, couldn't get their way, because in the United Nations, you have one vote for one country. And the majority of the countries happen to be third world countries. They happen to be countries which have given seed and biodiversity to the world. 
and they did not like the idea of seed being reduced to private property. So the corporations then moved to a new institution that was being created through what was then a half institution called the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. And it, it's fascinating that for 30 years, the industry had drafted laws for all kinds of monopoly. Monopoly in entertainment, if a Mickey Mouse turns up anyway, even in a child's notebook, they should pay royalty or a t-shirt. Um, and then, by then, a company that had only been related to warfare, to Agent Orange, very rapidly moved into the biotechnology sector, very rapidly started to buy up both venture capital firms as well as seed companies. And Monsanto emerged as the biggest seed monopoly in the world in the drafting of what is today called the Trade Related Intellectual Property Rights Agreement. What a mouthful. Precisely because this is not trade related and seed is not intellectual property. It doesn't pop out of anyone's head. Intellectual property is defined as property in products of the mind. Here is a very material, biological system that is suddenly re redefined as intellectual property. And um, a whole agreement was shaped around it and TR was put because India, my country, refused to accept patent law as a trade issue. He said, no, this is about nations deciding how, how far monopolies will go, nations deciding the balance between the public and the private. And uh, we had worked out a patent law over 20 years of democratic debate in society to get rid of the British laws that had been exactly like what we are coming back to, total monopoly in the handful, you know, in a few companies' hands. So the lawyers, of course, were very clever, put TR before IP and said, now it's trade-related by definition, so now you will accept it. After the WTO came into force, a representative of Monsanto actually said this. He said, what we've achieved in this agreement is something unprecedented. We defined a problem. And in this case, the problem was farmers saving seeds. That was a problem. And we defined the solution, make it illegal for farmers to save seeds. And we created the instrument, which is the TRIPS agreement, which forces every country now to have laws of monopoly. And we created the institution that would ensure that these are implemented. The institution, WTO is an interesting institution because it's the international court. It's an international non-parliament, non-democratic. And it is the international executive. Yeah? As Monsanto's representative said, in shaping the this treaty, we were the patient, the diagnostician, and the physician all in one. For me, that's a description of dictatorship. Although the deck appears to be stacked in favor of the giant multinationals and their practically inexhaustible access to lobbying and legal funds, the people are by no means incapable of fighting back against this patenting of the biosphere. In India itself, where so much devastation has been wrought by the introduction of genetically modified crops, the people are fighting back against the world's most well-known purveyor 
of GMO foods. Monsanto. The country's National Biodiversity Authority has enabled the government to proceed with legal action against the company for so-called biopiracy, or attempting to develop a GM crop derived from local varieties of eggplant without the appropriate licenses. Which is essentially owned by Monsanto. Ground for this environmental activist. Leo Saldana filed a complaint that has led to India charging American agricultural giant Monsanto with biopiracy. And the eggplant, or brinjal, is what the company is accused of stealing. Leo says Monsanto illegally used indigenous brinjal varieties to create a genetically modified version of the vegetable. So there are six varieties taken from Karnataka, which Monsanto has taken without any conformance with the Biological Diversity Act, and therefore it is biopiracy. And once they put the BT gene into brinjal, then it becomes a commodity which is essentially owned by Monsanto. The brinjal is one of the most popular vegetables in India, with close to 2,500 varieties. In 2010, Monsanto's partner companies nearly got approval to commercialize a GM variety called BT brinjal. The massive public protests forced the government to ban it indefinitely. Undeterred, Monsanto's continued testing other GM crops. Two months ago, a hastily destroyed experimental field of GM maize was filmed by a local TV crew. Monsanto has been accused by Greenpeace of not informing the field's owner about the nature of the crop. We didn't really have an agreement. Monsanto just made me sign a form. What was written on the form? Nothing. There was just a date and the name of the company. Although resistance to the patenting of the world's food supply should be applauded in all its forms, what is needed is a fundamental transformation in our understanding of life itself, from a patentable organism to the common property of all of the people who have developed the seeds from which these novel GM crops are derived. This concept, known as open seeds, is being promoted by organizations around the globe, including Dr. Vandana Shiva's Navdanya organization. Traditional knowledge has grown as a tradition that is shared. It has grown cumulatively and collectively. That is what makes it deeply distinctive. Intellectual property rights are based on the idea of an individual having rights, which is then based on the idea of an individual making innovation, which is not the way knowledge actually works. Knowledge is a collective tradition. It's a common resource of society. To me, the idea of treating seed as an invention a system in which farmers would be treated as thieves and criminals for saving their seeds and performing their duty to the earth is abhorrent. That's what made me get involved in this idea, to keep seeds open. Open source is like open seeds. Open pollinated variety seeds are made through pollination of bees and butterflies acting in freedom. They are free in the sense they can be saved generation after generation. They are seeds of prosperity, they're seeds of life. Open source software is the same. It is a way of spreading prosperity and knowledge in society rather than creating scarcity, poverty and deprivation. To be sure, it will be a long and arduous uphill battle to bring this issue to the attention of a public that seems to be but dimly aware of what genetically modified foods even are, let alone the legal ramifications of the ability to patent life. But as the work of such organizations as Navdanya continue to educate people about the issues involved, the number of those opposed to the patenting of the biosphere likewise increases. From seed saving and preservation projects to an increased awareness of and interest in organic foods, 
People around the globe are beginning to take the issue of the food supply as seriously as the companies that are quite literally attempting to ram their products down the consumers' throats. As always, the power lies with the consumers, who can win the battle simply by asserting their right to choose where and how they purchase their food, a lesson that was once again demonstrated earlier this month in Germany. Dieter Renner is an organic farmer in the state of Rheinland-Pfalz. He's the fourth generation in his family to grow grain and vegetables, all organically. He's glad that BASF decided to transfer its research unit for genetically modified crops out of Germany. He says local farmers will benefit. I'm pleased. It's proof that the people who oppose genetically modified crops are right. 70% of Germans oppose genetic technology, so BASF made the right decision about leaving Germany. It's too bad they'll still be able to carry out their research in the U.S. This kind of research should be stopped. That's right, friends. The corporations would have you believe that just because they're Washington wizards who are in their back pocket wave their magic wand, they can now patent life itself. Yes, living organisms can be patented because they've been genetically engineered. And that, my friends, is just the start of the slippery slope. And I think we know what types of things that leads to, which is why it is so important that we have that alternative idea of open source, open seeds, in order to combat this growing patentization of the world itself. What a horrific thought that is. And unfortunately, of course, we know the ways that Monsanto and other such companies are literally trying to infect the entire ecosystem, the entire world with their garbage and filth so that the entire world will thus be beholden to them in order to even get the things that we need to live like food. Absolutely ridiculous, absolutely horrific that it has succeeded so far and in such a, a, a unfortunately amazing fashion. So, of course, it is absolutely imperative that we do spread the understanding that there are ways around this intellectual property paradigm, which is threatening to stifle the earth itself, the entire planet. So once again, open seeds is something that I think people should be looking into and Vandana Shiva and the work that she's done on that. There are lots of other people who are promoting similar concepts. I hope you will look into that and start getting on that bandwagon, so to speak. But also, I think it's important to understand that technology itself, not just software, but of course hardware, is also limited by patents and trademarks, as even people like Facebook are finding out. Now Yahoo is suing Facebook for patent infringement, and we sometimes see this fighting amongst the corporate titans for space on that corporate ladder. But uh, but uh, it's there's again, there's a way around this paradigm, and there's a way to see a world in which people are not beholden to these small few companies that can afford to accrue the capital to pay the inventors to come up with the patentable technologies to then sell to us so that we can only use them until they break and then pay the company again to get it fixed. No, we can take matters into our own hands and develop a DIY economy where people put their resources together, share their ideas through an open source system, and really, truly start to build a world that would have been unimaginable before this type of collaboration really came together. 
Now, again, this is a huge concept to wrap our minds around. So in this case, we'll listen to a TED talk of all things. Yes, it's not just globalist propaganda, or even if it is, there's sometimes some good ideas in there. We're going to listen to someone called Markin Jakubowski, who is the founder of Open Source Ecology. Hi, my name is Marcin, farmer, technologist. I was born in Poland, now in the US. I started a group called Open Source Ecology. We've identified the 50 most important machines that we think takes for modern life to exist. Things from tractors, bread ovens, circuit makers. Then we set out to create an open source, DIY, do-it-yourself version that anyone can build and maintain at a fraction of the cost. We call this the Global Village Construction Set. So let me tell you a story. So I finished my 20s with a PhD in fusion energy, and I discovered I was useless. <laughs> I had no practical skills. I mean, the world presented me with options, and I took them. I guess you can call it the consumer lifestyle. So I started a farm in Missouri and learned about the economics of farming. I bought a tractor, then it broke. I paid to get it repaired, then it broke again. And pretty soon, I was broke too. I realized that the truly appropriate, low-cost tools that I needed to start a sustainable farm and settlement just didn't exist yet. I needed tools that were robust, modular, highly efficient and optimized, low-cost, made from local and recycled materials that would last a lifetime, not designed for obsolescence. I found that I would have to build them myself. So I did just that. And I tested them. And I found that industrial productivity can be achieved on a small scale. So then I published the 3D designs, schematics, instructional videos, and budgets on a wiki. Then contributors from all over the world began showing up, prototyping new machines during dedicated project visits. So far, we have prototyped eight of the 50 machines, and now the project is beginning to grow on its own. We know that open source has succeeded with tools for managing knowledge and creativity, and the same is starting to happen with hardware, too. We're focusing on hardware because it is hardware that can change people's lives in such tangible material ways. If we can lower the barriers to farming, building, manufacturing, then we can unleash just massive amounts of human potential. That's not only in the developing world. Our tools are being made for the American farmer, builder, entrepreneur, maker. We've seen lots of excitement from these people who can now start a construction business, parts manufacturing, organic CSA, or just selling power back to the grid. Our goal is a repository of published design so clear, so complete, that a single burned DVD is effectively a civilization starter kit. I've planted 100 trees in a day. I've pressed 5,000 bricks in one day from the dirt beneath my feet and built a tractor in six days. From what I've seen, this is only the beginning. If this idea is truly sound, then the implications are significant. A greater distribution of the means of production, environmentally sound supply chains, and a newly relevant DIY maker culture can hope to transcend artificial scarcity.
We're exploring the limits of what we all can do to make a better world with open hardware technology. Thank you. Well, imagine that, a world of self-sufficiency, but not complete isolation where everybody just lives as individual islands. No, they come together to collaborate on projects that are there for everyone to see, that they can share their ideas and technology, and everyone on the planet can benefit. What an amazing idea that is. And that, my friends, is a vision, maybe not necessarily the definitive vision, but a vision of what life without intellectual property might look like. And I think it would definitely be in our best interest to start exploring these types of concepts, these different open source ecologies and open source seeds and open source software and hardware and everything else in order to start understanding that there is a world that exists beyond the idea that you can copyright and patent ideas, the things that spring from out of people's heads. And once we start to realize that this world could be so much better if we actually came together and collaborated on things like this and bypassed those would-be corporate masters entirely, well, the sooner we will be able to get off their corporate enslavement grid. Well, that's the idea for today's episode, so we'll leave things there for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.